Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Good morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this word that you have given to us. Thank you for this book of Hebrews. Even though we're not entirely sure who penned it, we know that it came from you. And we are so grateful for the words that we get to study thousands of years later. And that we get to have your spirit to interpret it to us. Please speak to us today through your word and through your spirit and enlighten our hearts to what you have for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't know about you guys, but I've got a pretty like, okay sense of direction. I'm really confident about where I'm going and uh, until I'm proven otherwise, which is frequently. Uh, I was glad when I moved to Denver 12 years ago because it's easy on the front range to know where you're going. All you have to do is locate the largest mountain range in North America, and you know which direction is west. So in the 1920s, there were some interesting experiments done with respect to the human's sense of direction. The subjects were either blindfolded in a fog or, uh, or they couldn't see where they were going, and they didn't have a landmark. And so... All they tried to do was just walk in a straight line. The goal was to see if people could walk in a straight line without being oriented by their vision. And here's the result of the first experiment. <laughs> the blindfolded walker made it about 100 yards before he began to turn to the right, and then he began to go in tighter and tighter circles until he ran into a tree stump 90 degrees to the right of where he was supposed to be walking. The second example here is of three men leaving a barn, going at, trying to go a quarter mile to a place that they all knew and were all familiar with through a thick fog. They almost got there, but then they began to drift off to the right, making four huge circles until they ended up back at the barn that they left from. The third study was done by a blindfolded swimmer, which is even worse. I don't think I could even swim that long. And then the fourth example, don't try this one at home, but this was a blindfolded driver in a field. <laughs> There's still no great answer after these studies were done. There's no great answer about why. You know, you might think, well, people's gait or, um, you know, but, but that doesn't account for the swimming or the driving. 
Um, so there's, there's no great answer why these results all ended up the same, but we just can't walk in a straight line on our own without some kind of landmark or compass or some aid. Now, the author of Hebrews has a similar picture in mind for us this morning when he instructs his audience to pay much closer attention to the gospel lest they drift away. He knows it's easy to drift. The word has this connotation in our minds of a lack of effort. If you're in a boat and you're not rowing or paying attention to your sails, you're just enjoying lemonade and getting some color, you're just going to end up wherever the wind takes you. There's a lack of effort in drifting, a lack of will, a lack of purpose. You don't have to do anything to drift. And that's the main thrust of today's sermon. It's right up front. Don't drift. So this morning we're going to address drifting, and we'll also talk about the consequences of drifting, and then later we'll talk about how to keep yourself from drifting. So the first point in your outline there is warning not to drift. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We heard last week from Ben how much greater Christ is from the angels. And after the preacher here in Hebrews finishes his dissertation on the greatness of Christ, he says, therefore. As you know, that word is used to pivot our attention from one concept to another that's logically linked. People like to ask, when you see therefore, what's the therefore therefore? So... I've expanded, I've taken some liberties to kind of expand our passage this morning. And uh, here's, a, here's a different way to, to hear it if you incorporate some of the first chapter. Since we know now how far superior Christ is, even to the angels, which are honored and glorious beings themselves, we must pay much closer attention to the gospel of salvation preached by Christ, lest we drift away from it. For this, the, the message declared by angels, that is the Mosaic law, proved to be reliable and truly the word of God. And in, in the Mosaic law, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Then how should we escape from our just retribution if we neglect such a greater salvation proclaimed to us by Christ? Is there any other way to be saved under the law? This salvation was declared at first by Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, since we were not there to hear it with our own ears. While God also bore witness to that gospel by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So as you can see from our beautiful sermon series artwork over here on the wall and and above me, the theme of this book, and as Nate mentioned, It's to hold fast. Today's passage is the first of five warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews telling us to do just that. You know, probably the most thorough treatment of the book of Hebrews was done in what is now a seven-volume commentary, over 3,500 pages written over the period of 18 years by a guy named John Owen in the 17th century. One uh, one reviewer of it, uh, a, a contemporary, 
said it is excruciatingly detailed. And to put it in perspective, this was written during the time of Pocahontas. So the English hasn't been updated. So it's a, it's a bit tough to wade through. It's not exactly accessible. But he, uh, he does something very interesting. Um, he renders this phrase, lest we drift away from it. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He renders that phrase as, lest at any time we should flow out. Uh, which is a bit weird. And I, uh, I know textual analysis can be uh, boring. Uh, but hang with me, because this is pretty cool. So the word the author of Hebrews uses uh, in Greek is para-ruomen. And para, as you know, we still use that um, as beside or alongside. And reo, which means to flow or overflow. So this word can indicate, scholars have, have noted, it can indicate the drifting of an unmoored boat, which goes along with our nautical theme. Or it can even indicate a ring slipping off a finger, which is a strong metaphor for the church's destiny as the bride of Christ. You know, We're also told that the expression, lest at any time we should flow out, or para ruomen, can also be an allusion to leaking pots, which let the water that is poured into them through their tops leak out in many holes in their base. The person who hears and rejects the gospel is like a pot that has been poured into who then allows the gospel to leak out through either rejection or neglect of its message. Owen, the Puritan, writes this, although I've updated his English. This is an elegant metaphor in this word, parabruomen. As the drops of rain falling on the earth water it and make it fruitful while the earth takes no notice of it, so the gospel makes the souls of men fruitful to God. And as Christ comes down to us as the showers on the mown grass, so the gospel preached to men is the watering of their souls, which water they pour out by their neglect of the gospel. There is an allusion here to the water of life, the gospel as the water being poured into us. And you know, look elsewhere. This, this shows up throughout Scripture a couple times in John and once in Proverbs. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That would be the opposite of, of letting your, the water spill onto the floor, but pouring it into someone else. Uh, Proverbs 18 says, The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 that he would have given her living water if she would have asked him. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Owen notes here that the caution is that we should attend to the word of the gospel, lest by our neglect of it, we bring ourselves inevitable ruin and perish as water that is spilled onto the ground, which cannot be gathered up again.
We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul writes to the Corinthians, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are to retain the gospel in these jars of clay and overflow with its produce in our life, whose overflow will fill the lives of others. We must not let the gospel poured into us leak out onto the floor. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they had been, uh, after they had received the Mosaic law, they had grumbled, they had left Sinai, and they grumbled and said to Moses, one of the many times that they had done this, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They, they were referring to the miraculous uh, manna that would appear every morning, whose source was unknown and it was unexplained. This daily miracle that would feed them. They loathed it. As a result of this complaint, and this was not the first, we see in Numbers 21 that God sent fiery serpents among them. And those serpents bit some of the Israelites who then died. Moses prayed to God for the snakes to go away. But instead of the snakes going away, God told Moses to fashion a serpent out of bronze or copper and lift it up on a pole. Whoever looked at the bronze snake after being bitten would be saved. We are to cling to the gospel today as the Israelites looked to Moses' bronze snake. In fact, Jesus directly compared himself to that bronze snake, saying that he would be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. We've all been bitten by sin, and we all must look to the cross and not look away if we were to be saved. So there are, there are plenty of ways for us to drift, to flow out, to let the water of the gospel spill on the floor. Lots of things in our lives that would put holes in our jars or cracks. One way to think of the things that keep our attention off the gospel is to, is to think of those things as idols in our lives. That's, that's kind of the definition of what an idol is. It's, it's what would take your eyes off the bronze serpent. Put simply, an idol in our lives is anything that becomes more important to us than the gospel. And this passage, along with the other four warning passages in Hebrews, illuminate for us the reason that the prohibition against idolatry was the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's very easy to have other gods for idols to slip into your life. It's very easy for our pots to leak. We don't have to do anything it's very easy to look to the leaders of this world and to influencers on social media to dictate the life that you should lead. And let's be honest, it's easier and, more, and probably more fun to scroll Instagram than it is to read the Bible. And no, those Bible accounts on Instagram don't count. That desperate looking to the bronze snake of Christ for salvation is how we are to attend to our salvation. 
The author of Hebrews wants us to stop listening to the, to the destructive and selfish voices of the world and start listening to the word of God. One is drifting and one is abiding. Stop caring about what your followers think and start caring about who you follow as teacher. Now here's a question I'm posing to myself this morning and I have all week. Does your life look more like the life of a little Christ, just the word Christian. Does your life look more like the life of a little Christ or like the life of a little Kardashian or the life of a little Trump? How would people outside the church describe you if they had to describe you by someone else? Shifting gears here a little bit. I want to mention that there are many ways to stay motivated to retain the water of life. One of, these, one of the ways is to realize that the gospel has many facets, all of, all, each facet of which calls for a different response from us. For a masterful description of some of the aspects of salvation, I urge you to pick up John Stott's The Cross of Christ. It is masterful. Chapter 7, he outlines four or five different uh, aspects of the gospel. And different aspects speak to different people. There's redemption out of slavery, being adopted into a family, being reconciled in a relationship, being justified in a courtroom, being covered by a sacrifice, and being saved from sure destruction. So, for example, the, the aspect of the gospel that teaches us that we were saved from sure destruction. That's the snake bit. That's the snake bite aspect. We're snake bit. And if we look to Jesus for our salvation, he saves us from the poison of sin. Now here's the, here's the response. How would you respond if someone did that to you? If you were one of the Israelites in the wilderness who was snake bit and looked to the bronze snake and was saved. How would you feel toward God? How would you feel toward Moses? How would you feel if you were about to die and someone saved your life? You would probably feel indebted to that person for the whole rest of your life. Knowing that if they didn't act, you'd no longer be alive. You would probably feel a weight of debt to that person a debt of gratitude that cannot be repaid. And this is true. This is one aspect of the gospel, and it is true. This is what Christ did for us. Christian, be motivated by your life debt to God. He has truly saved your life. Let that keep you from drifting. Uh, another aspect of the gospel that might motivate us to retain our life-giving water is the family aspect. We were once strangers to God, aliens from another land who had no connection and no nexus to God. We were strangers and aliens, right? We didn't know who he was. He was from a different place, and we would have no reason for him to have anything to do with us. He saw the state we were in, that we needed a parent for us, that we needed a parent to care for us, and he adopted us 
into his family. He loves us like we were his own children. And we have a brotherhood with Jesus. We are constantly crushed by the weight of God's love for us. And our brother Jesus that, did, uh, that, that died on the cross for us. And our only response is to overflow with love for him and for our brothers and sisters, each other. Christian, be motivated by your adoption into the family of God. You truly are his sons and daughters. We were also a criminal, rightly accused in court, and ready to be declared guilty and sentenced to death. We know we're guilty, and there's no denying it. Everyone assents to our human conscience. The prosecution has rested its very thorough case and has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that we are very guilty. But our our advocate, our lawyer friend, steps in to propose an alternative sentence. He says he will be declared guilty on our behalf, and he was sentenced to death on our behalf. And we get to be declared not only not guilty, but affirmatively righteous. And we are sent away from court free to go. How would you feel toward your lawyer friend? Someone hesitate to even allow another person to do this because it would put them in too great a debt. And we could be motivated by a heavy weight of gratefulness toward Jesus for taking our punishment in our place that we deserved. Our response to this should be a life lived in tribute to our substitute. Living the life that he would have lived since he died the death that we would have died. A life conformed to his character, a reflection of him. Christian, be motivated by Christ's substitution for you and the punishment he took on your behalf. These are just three aspects of the gospel. There are many more. These have just been poignant to me personally. You may be also motivated by the priestly work he he performed on your behalf as high priest, or that he was the sacrificial lamb to purify us and repair our relationship with God, or that he purchased us out of slavery so that we can serve a better master. But whatever aspect of the gospel is most attractive to you, I beg you, cling to it. Meditate on it. Grab a hold of it and don't let go. Keep the living water in your clay jar and let it fill you up and spill over into the spill over your brim into the lives of others. Okay, so that's point one. Don't drift. I've given you some motivation to keep from drifting. Point three, I'll give you some application, but point two here is extremely important. It's the consequences of drifting. The author of Hebrews here warns us not to drift, not to flow out, not to abandon Christ, not to let the ring slip off our finger. And then he gives us a negative reason and a positive reason. Two of my nieces right now are studying Latin and logic, so you'll have to forgive part of what's coming for Sophia's and Chloe's sake. Following on the heels of the first chapter's comparison 
of angels to Christ. The author reveals his purpose to which he was driving in, in this argument from lesser to greater, which was a common form of argument. He's saying if the Mosaic law was delivered by angels and it was good and had just punishment for those who broke that law during their earthly lives, how much more then will those who violate the new covenant, which was delivered by God himself, how much more will they be justly punished? And not just on earth, but in eternity. This lesser to greater argument was, was popular in this period in history. And it's a, it's a way to show that a, a logically related point has the same foundation and is even more true than the first. It's still used today. You might find the Supreme Court justices refer to this as argumentum a minore ad maius. It's the inverse of argumentum a fiori. A fortiori, sorry. Not an argument of flame. You probably noticed the foundation of this lesser to greater argument was that the angels delivered the law to Moses. And that might sound a little strange because that's not in our account in Exodus. That's something we don't hear very much, something we don't think about. Uh, it was well accepted, though, in the Jewish, Jewish tradition that angels delivered the law to Moses. God spoke the law. It was God's law. But the angels somehow delivered or mediated the law to Moses. Maybe they brought the uh, stone tablets. Or, we're, we're, not, we're not sure. But Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uh, mentions angelic involvement in the delivery of the law in his final speech uh, moments before he's stoned to death in Acts. Uh, And the author goes on to show that the Mosaic law was reliable, it was trustworthy, and Israel suffered earthly punishment when they disobeyed the law. Now, there's too many examples to give here, but uh, look no further than Nadab and Abihu, uh, the sons of Aaron the priest, who played fast and loose with the sacrificial laws and dropped dead on the spot because they violated the law. This lesser to greater argument is even helpful to us today to understand the relationship between the two covenants, the old and the new. The points of comparison are these. Angels delivered the old covenant. God himself delivered the new covenant in Jesus. Angels are uh, are majestic beings, inspiring fear in those who encounter them. Their first words are almost, fear not. We heard in chapter 1 how much greater Christ is than the angels and almost ad nauseum excursus on the superiority of Jesus to the angels. By now, we're very certain that men are down here somewhere and angels are here since we're a little lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8. And Jesus is like way up there in the rafters. So it follows that the old covenant delivered by angels was reliable. How much more reliable is the new covenant, which was delivered by God himself? If the old covenant was just, how much more just is the new covenant? Schreiner points out that the violators of the old covenant had an earthly punishment, but the violators of the new covenant will have an eternal punishment, another lesser to greater proof. The author would say that everything that is true about the old covenant is true to a greater extent in the New Covenant. 
Now, here's the scary part of the truth of that lesser or greater argument. You may have picked up on this already. If the earthly punishment delivered to those who violated or ignored the old covenant were just and deserved, how are we going to escape if we violate or ignore the new covenant? If you violated the old covenant, you could offer a sacrifice to cover your sin. If you didn't offer a sacrifice, you would be alienated from God's community unless and until you did so. If you didn't look to the bronze snake, you would have succumbed to the poison of the serpents. But now there's no sacrificial system any longer. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant through his sacrifice. That's the only covering anyone can claim for their sin anymore. We're living now in the era where the covering and sacrifice for sins is Jesus. There's no other way now. So the author is saying, how will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? If we don't look to the new bronze snake lifted up, that's the only way to be saved now. Furthermore, if the punishment for violating the old covenant was an earthly punishment, the punishment for violating the new covenant is an eternal one. There's no coming back from that. And there's no other way. This is why Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. The angels delivered the old covenant. Jesus delivered the new. The punishment for sin under the old covenant was earthly. Under the new covenant, it is eternal. The sacrifice for sin under the old covenant was the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifice under the new covenant is the blood of Jesus. The sacrifices under the old covenant were effective for a little while until the next sin was committed. But the sacrifice by the blood of Jesus under the new covenant is effective for all our past sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape? This is a stern warning, and it's the first and gentlest of five that the author of Hebrews brings to us. There's no escape for those who reject the gospel. There's simply no other way that we can be with God. And if we are not with God, that we are going to be justly punished for our own sin and apart from God for eternity. The final point in your outline is how to not drift. We've seen this morning the, new, the importance of the new covenant, the importance of the gospel, how critical it is that we don't drift away, that we don't let the ring slip off our finger, that we don't let the water of life drain out of our vessels. But let's get practical. How exactly do we in the 21st century, how do we not drift? If you play golf, like I do, you know the one thing all bad swing thoughts have in common. You're over the ball, you have to have something in your head. So all bad swing thoughts 
have the same thing in common. They all start with the same word. Don't. That's because whatever you're telling yourself not to do, surely you're going to do that thing. Sports psychologists have discovered the brain barely even registers a negative. At its roots, the brain doesn't process don't. It just hears the thing that you're not supposed to do and wants to do it. It's far more effective in golf and in life to focus on an affirmative act. Keep your head down rather than a negative one. Don't come up out of it. If we focus on the thing we're supposed to do, it's psychologically more effective than focusing on something you're not supposed to do. You didn't think you'd be getting a golf lesson this morning, I'm sure. But what should we do? What should we do this morning in life? Metaphorically, we need to keep our eyes on the compass, focus on our landmark, take off the blindfold of our culture, Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the gospel. You know, Jerry Bridges used to say that he would preach the gospel to himself every day. The gospel isn't just a one-time concept to which we assent and then move on. Uh, It's an ongoing truth on which we must continue to focus. We have many aspects on which to focus, and they are all there for our benefit. You don't just look at your compass once at the beginning of your journey and then put it away and start walking because we saw earlier what happens if you do that. You keep your compass out. You're constantly glancing at it, making sure you're headed in the right path. Owen has some practical application points for us that I've again updated to modern English. Three points of our salvation for us to meditate on to help us hold fast, to help us, as your outline says, marinate in the gospel. And these truths will satisfy our souls more deeply than anything else we can meditate on or dream about. First, wonder at how good our inheritance is in Christ. Think about what you have in Christ that you lacked before and how good it is. You have community with your brothers and sisters here and across the world. You didn't have that before. And without Christ, you wouldn't have that. And that's a good thing. Your life has a purpose, a direction, a telos that you didn't have before. And that's good. Your life is moving toward a goal, unlike any other goal offered by the world, and that's good. The Apostle Paul frequently used athletic and competitive imagery to describe our life. We're we're running a race, and you can now run the race of life like you will win it, instead of the defeatism that infects our human hearts. The gospel is our treasure, our inheritance. Why should our hearts be anywhere else? Let me ask you and myself this morning, do you know more about the Broncos than about the gospel? There's not much to know this season. But could you list more names of luxury cars or more names of God? 
Do you spend more time on social media than time reading the Bible or in prayer or discussing things of the word? These are tough questions for me. The second point of application here is to meditate on the fact that we have an ownership interest in the riches of the grace of God. A very real and concrete inheritance in eternity secured for us by Jesus. This is not a metaphor. This salvation and our riches were prepared for us in eternity past and we are the heirs of it. It was purchased for us by Jesus Christ. We have redemption from slavery and salvation from wrath through his blood. We have a brotherhood with Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Brothers and sisters, I can say that because you are my brothers and sisters. These riches are ours. They are very real, and no one can take them away. Finally, meditate on the profit and advantage which we shall have in these riches. Think about what they'll do for us. Think of these things. The eternal counsel of God. The person of Christ. Christ's mediation and grace for us and to us. The promises of the gospel. The ability to not sin. The evil and wrath from which we're freed. The redemption and glory purchased for us. The privileges into which we're admitted. The consolation and joys of the spirit. The communion with God to which we are called. How glorious are these things in the eyes of believers? If we meditate on these things, the profit and advantage, how good they are, and how we own those riches. If we meditate on these things, we will be conformed by the renewing of our mind to the riches that Jesus has secured for us in the gospel. Where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. You know, once you meditate on these, you know what will happen? You won't care as much when someone keys your car. You won't care about that Ferrari as much in the poster on your wall. You won't worry about getting that promotion or making partner or getting into the right college or getting the right friends. You won't care about as much what people think about you. Meditate on these Riches, the unsummable wealth that is very much ours, thanks to what Jesus has done for us. Cling to this salvation. Don't look away from the bronze serpent of Jesus. Don't let the gospel poured into you leak out onto the ground. Don't drift away, but drop your anchor. You know, it's the opinion of this layman that God's primary purpose for doing anything, even before his glory, is to be with us. He has found a way to make a race of creatures who have their own free will, who are flawed, but who he can still bring into his community through the covering of his son, Jesus. God's number one goal is to be with us 
So if there's one thing that we can be sure of, it's that if we accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, our sins, those errors and omissions that keep us distant from God, then we can be with him. We can be with him now through the Holy Spirit, and we can be with him in eternity. Do you know him? He knows you. He made you. And he wants you to know him more than anything else in the world. He wants to be with you. And if you don't know him yet, please come talk to me. Come talk to Paul who was up here. Come talk to Lars. We would love nothing more than to introduce you. In closing, listen to the words of this Puritan prayer that I find fitting to this passage. O Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbor with flying pennants, hull unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I venture on thee fully, wholly, my wind, sunshine, anchor, defense. The voyage is long, the waves are high, the storms are pitiless. But my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward. My haven is guaranteed. Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross, then every oncoming wave the fountain in his side. Help me, protect me in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Lord, help us to not drift, but rather to retain the water of life that you've poured into us through the gospel. The word that we have here in print and the living word of your son, Jesus. God, fill us with your spirit this week. Make your presence obvious to us. Draw us into community with you as we go about the banal aspects of our week. But Lord, help us to have our priorities in line. Help us to worship you first to give you the first fruits of our week as we're doing this morning and of each day. We pray these th- things in your son's name. Amen.